0: and now the federal drive with
1: tom temen hello and thanks for joining us on this thursday may 18th 2023 seven minutes past the hour i'm tom temen our producers are eric white and peter masurlian our digital editors daisy thornton and daris lauderdale coming up in this hour of the federal drive in our service to america Medals series how the air force went from log jam to innovation factory Plus, what NIST is hearing from industry about critical infrastructure cybersecurity. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Pregnant Workers' Fairness Act will soon let employees request reasonable accommodations for pregnancy, childbirth, and related conditions. The law applies to all employers, but federal agencies will have their own approaches to implementing it. It takes effect June 27th. For details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with Sharon Tajani, Associate Legal Counsel in the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's Office of Legal Counsel, and with Denisha James, Attorney Advisor in the EEOC's Office of Federal Operations. You hear James first.
2: They will have to decide um, from an implementation perspective, what does that implementation look like? What will our procedures, um, our processes look like? How will we have to update our processes and procedures to reflect this additional protection this this protection that will be effective in june i like to think the federal agencies are ahead of the eight ball right i like to think that we 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 as federal agencies we are quite evolved in in regard to workers' rights, in regard to how we protect those rights. And so uh, the federal government agencies, at least based on my communications and, and trainings with them, we have so many processes and procedures. I feel confident what the PWFA provides into the process and procedures that exist now. Many federal workers, the civil rights programs that they implement every day um, in regard to the other anti-discrimination laws that they're responsible for implementing. So I like to think that uh, it won't would, would be terribly challenging um, because of all the processes, procedures, much of the redundancy that already existed.
3: Would this necessarily be like easier for federal agencies compared with maybe private sector employers to implement this just because of what's already in place? How much would this really stray from what already exists?
2: I think it will be easy. I mean I mean I I can tell you that as it exists now many if not all agencies have either a reasonable accommodations office or a standard operating procedure that managers and employees have available to process reasonable accommodations requests. So I would view the Right under the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act is sort of building upon really the structure of the reasonable accommodations process that many agencies have in place right now. I'll give you an example. Upon notifying a manager that you need an ergonomic chair, for example, there's a process for many agencies that exist now today of who is the point of contact in human resources or who is the point of contact in office of legal counsel. So of course, that process and that procedure looks different based on the agency, based on the size, um, based on a number of other factors. But I like to think that the Pregnant Workers' Fairness Act and the process for processing those requests under this new law. We'll sort of be folded into the procedures as, as many agencies are implementing now,
0: um, pursuant to the ADA. To pick up Danisha's point about the PWFA uses lots of terms that are already in the law. And so things like reasonable accommodation, undue hardship, what kind of employers are covered, those all come from existing civil rights laws. And so generally employers that have processes in place, whether that's the federal government or private employers, can modify those processes to then include the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. So that way, it shouldn't be that much of a difference. This shouldn't be that much of a jarring transition, we think, for employers, whether that's the federal government or private employers.
3: Are there areas where agencies or other employers might want to pay special attention?
2: One of the things that's been discussed around training the PWFA is that, you know, there are no magic words sort of associated with how one should be starting the conversation about protections that may be afforded, accommodations that may be afforded under the PWFA. Um, There are no magic phrases that should be used. So I think that for federal agencies, this will be an opportunity to remind their managers, supervisors, having communication is really the first step. There's a lot of terminology um, in the PWFA, around making a limitation known, and and once a manager is is aware of a limitation, of of course has a responsibility to respond appropriately. And so, educating managers and supervisors around knowing there won't be any magic words, right? The, the communication should should be the communication that you have with your, with your employees on a day to day basis. But being aware that. There are lots of ways that a worker can convey that they have a limitation and having the resources available
0: to the manager to respond appropriately.
3: Sharon, anything that you wanted to add to that?
0: Another part of that is, while lots of stuff is the same, there are certain things that are obviously different, right? That's why they had to have a new law. One of them being the what you get an accommodation for. So you get an accommodation for a known limitation. That is very clearly doesn't have to reach the definition of a disability. And so you know, as Anisha was saying, like training employee, training supervisors to know that when these requests come in, while you may use the same processes as the Rehab Act, what you can get an accommodation for is different and making sure that, employee, that supervisors especially know that and know that they have to start processing these requests as they come in.
3: Can you give a couple examples of what the accommodations could be for pregnant employees here?
0: So it's certainly going to depend on the employee, but um, some examples that come from like the House report about this bill are things like additional bathroom breaks, being able to carry water with you, breaks to stop and eat, light duty, time off for medical appointments, time off to recover from childbirth. And those are just examples, obviously. It's going to depend on the employee. It's going to depend on the job. And an employer doesn't have to give a reasonable accommodation, right? Just like under the Rehab Act if it causes an undue hardship then the employer doesn't have to do
3: it how common is it for these types of you know accommodations to be missing for pregnant employees where is the basis of this law coming from why was it why was it needed i would say that the
2: law was Needed, And this is very apparent by, you know, the the debates and communications on the floor by our congressional leaders, they speak a lot about sort of empowering pregnant workers to continue to earn a living in a way that is healthy and in a way that preserves the safeties regarding Childbirth re- regarding the aftermath of childbirth, the expansiveness of the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act is not just about you know being pregnant, not just about the the um, act of childbirth, but but in some situations the medical um, complications that that may come after. So so it's really this expansive a- a approach or, or a holistic approach is how I would say to understanding um, and being responsive to the rights for workers. Um, as it relates to all aspects of childbirth. In addition to that, one of the his groups of individuals who, who now have protection are pregnant workers who are are pregnant with no other um acute complications that will rise to the level of a disability. So so, under the current law, as Sharon has said, the requirement for water, the requirement for more bathroom breaks, you know, those are conditions that can be necessary for a worker who's experiencing
0: an uncomplicated pregnancy. As Tanisha said, what was aimed at was there's this gap in coverage. There was this group of people who needed accommodations and weren't getting them under either the Rehab Act or Title 7, and I think that's a lot of what this is aimed at. It's a good thing for agencies to offer these accommodations anyway. These are things that allow pregnant workers, workers affected by childbirth, workers with related medical conditions, to stay on the job, to do their jobs well. And the time and energy it takes to replace people is so high. that if you can do something like this for your workers, that's a better thing for the agency because you get to keep the talent and keep the expertise. And these workers get to, you know, get through their pregnancy, their childbirth, their related medical condition in a way that makes it easier for them to continue working.
1: Sharon Tajani, Associate Legal Counsel in the EEOC's Office of Legal Counsel, And Denisha James, attorney advisor in EEOC's Office of Federal Operations, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what NIST is hearing from industry about critical infrastructure cybersecurity. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Some things in life are certain, death, taxes, and updates to NIST cybersecurity documents. Now the National Institute of Standards and Technology is evaluating comments for a revision to guidance on critical infrastructure cybersecurity. For an overview of the more than 100 comments NIST has received, we turn to attorney and wiley Rhine partner, Megan Brown. Megan, good to have you back.
4: Thanks for having me, Tom.
1: And just briefly, why would wiley Ryan be looking at all of these comments. You've got cybersecurity practice in your DNA there.
4: Yes. We have a lot of clients who are government contractors, who are in critical infrastructure, who are technology companies. And we've been involved with the NIST cyber framework since its inception more than a decade ago when President Obama issued his executive order. So we care deeply about how this evolves.
1: And most of the commenters, you have a link to the commenters, are A few individuals, but mostly corporate types of things. What's your sense of what this guidance update is all about?
4: So, you know, they've done a previous update several years ago, and the feeling is it's a really important document that has been successfully received by the private sector. NIST has won a bunch of awards for their collaboration and and building this thing that people really do use. It's also started to be used overseas, which is great. But there's a feeling that it's been several years and the cyber threat landscape has changed and we might be a little more mature in our sense of what companies should be doing. And so they're adding some additional things to the NIST cyber framework and broadening its scope, quite frankly.
1: Yes. And I imagine that a lot of the industrial control systems, which would be a subset of critical infrastructure, have evolved a lot in recent years from being maybe legacy programming with ancient operating systems to the new internet IP-based types of services that are available across the software landscape. And that might have changed the picture, making them more vulnerable.
4: Well, I think what the government is grappling with is this convergence of the operational technology and information technology. I will say a lot of the comments and other work streams show that there is still a heavy base of installed OT that people are concerned about, but that is being managed. But that's a challenge that this document from NIST and many other documents are trying to grapple with is how to deal with the convergence of OT and IT as people refer to it.
1: And because this has general acceptance in the form that it was already in. The comments seem to be supporting what NIST is doing
4: in certain respects. I think what we've seen NIST, they're taking a gradual approach like they did before. They've done a bunch of workshops. They've just put out a discussion draft or a concept paper that is out for public comment sort of towards the end of this month. They're hoping to get feedback on it before they iterate to the next draft. Some of the comments are supportive of some of these moves. But there is some caution in the comments being urged about major changes to the structure of the document or addition of sort of wholly new concepts. And I'm happy to describe some of those friction points in the comments. But I think you're right. Generally, I think people are on board with an update. It's just kind of let's not break stuff in the course of updating it.
1: Sure. And what were some of the friction points? Just the highlights.
4: So I think a lot of people are concerned about the addition of new functions so the way the framework is structured in the document is there's these five functions that make up the core of this approach and the approach is a process-based approach and this wants to add a governance function and so there's some friction in the comments with some industries kind of suggesting that maybe we don't need a whole new function it might be duplicative of other things that are already in there or others saying if you're gonna add a govern function which is about organizational management and accountability, make sure it's very flexible because for the types of diverse companies and organizations that would use this document, they're going to tackle something like governance in very different ways. And I think NIST has heard that feedback.
1: Yes, because you have, as you say, associations that are responding. But looking at some of the commenters, they range from Capital One to American Airlines, I see on their XL Energy And those types of companies, very often cyber, is so close to the mission delivery that they really probably have that governance already and maybe don't feel like they need something extra.
4: Well, the additional challenge I see, I think that's right, and I agree with that. But the additional challenge that I think came out in a few of the comments was, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission, for example, has a proposed rule for public companies that will affect – that is intended to affect – corporate governance and accountability. And so there is a bit of a concern that there's a lot of things still moving on policy. And it might be a little premature to get too specific about what governance might look like, especially given other agencies like the TSA. There's other agencies that are in cyber. And so it's this sort of marrying everything up that I think makes people a little worried.
1: We're speaking with Megan Brown. She's a partner at the law firm Wiley Rhine. And could some of that skittishness be in a bigger context that pretty much everywhere you look, mainly on the acquisition front and federal procurement front, that the regulations just keep piling on and piling on from the Biden administration?
4: I think there is a bit of that now from like my, my client's perspective and my perspective, the NIST cyber framework has always been a refreshingly voluntary, flexible approach. So I think people want to preserve it as compared to some of these new regulatory constructs, some of which are looking to build on the framework. And that might be helpful to a degree, but there is this underlying concern that you really hit the nail on the head there that some regulators may pick up the NIST cyber framework and convert it into a regulatory baseline. And I think there is concern about that as well.
1: And so what are you advising your clients to do to react to this? I mean, the comments are still open, correct?
4: Yes. Yes. The comments are still open. So, you know, my advice to whether it's a government contractor or a technology company, critical infrastructure is to, you know, look at what they're proposing and ask yourself if this became some sort of mandatory obligation or a regulator came and said, what do you do with this? How would you answer that? The other piece that I think we're advising folks is DHS and other agencies are still moving very quickly on other fronts. So you have these cybersecurity performance goals that the Department of Homeland Security has put out under an executive order, and they've received comments urging them as much as possible to harmonize what they're doing with the NIST cybersecurity framework. And so that's another place I tell folks, pay attention to what DHS is doing with these performance goals, because they too may ultimately be used or misused as a basis for regulation or oversight.
1: Right. The more diffuse these efforts get across the government, sometimes the less coordinated they also get.
4: It's a real challenge. You've got TSA, Transportation Security Administration, put out security directives that are quite prescriptive. They have a a rulemaking that they're starting to embark on. And they're real questions for some of these companies who are going to be covered by multiple of these regimes and frameworks. It just creates a lot of burden on them to analyze them, deconflict them, and kind of make it all work together.
1: And just a side question here, looking at the beautiful and really open way that NIST has organized the comments for anyone to read. I mean, it's really a fantastic web presentation. I mean, there's a list of links and it's all easy to read, type, easy to find. They don't all do that do they the regulatory agencies you know this kind of accept comments for whatever initiative they have
4: i mean they do so like tsa put out an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking that you can look up those comments through federalregulations.gov i think so you can find them but i think that's a fair point tom they're maybe not as elegantly presented or accessible as NIST has made some of these, right? Some agency dockets are a little tougher to track down and find stuff buried in them.
1: Yeah, unless you're an expert in that field, then it's completely unintelligible to the general public. Megan Brown is a partner at the law firm Wiley Ryan. Thanks so much.
4: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, if the government defaults, you might need that cash in your mattress. But first, in our Service to America metal series, how the Air Force went from log jam to innovation factory. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Air Force was among the earliest agencies to organize around the need for innovation. Its approach, known as AFWorks, got started back in 2017 and became a model for many other agencies. The idea man behind AFWorks is now a finalist in this year's Service to America medals program. He's the first of a series of finalists we'll be talking to through October. The Chief Strategy Officer for the Air Force Integrated Capabilities Directorate, Mark Ingram, joins me now. Mr. Ingram, good to have you in studio. Good to be here. And tell us, What AFWORKS was all about? What was your conception of it way back in 2017 before all these works got established?
5: Well, AFWORKS was really looking at how the Air Force can do business differently and how we could empower our workforce, what we call airmen and guardians, well, airmen at the time, guardians now that we've got the Space Force, but how we could empower them to look at the problems that they faced on their day to day basis, how could they solve them, scale their solutions, and make their lives easier. And really, what started as what we thought was going to be a process process-oriented discussion of how do we get people to come in and work with us really turned into a cultural movement where it became so much more than just about a process. It's not just about making acquisition easier, but it's about finding those ways to get companies to come in and understand what the military needs, helping the military communicate outward because it's a totally different language. But it's also about creating that sense of uh, like psychological safety where our employees felt that they were comfortable and safe to speak up and say, I have a problem, but I think I have a solution as well. And it was about creating an ecosystem. And all of those things together helped us really build out AFWorks into what it is today.
1: And what were the signals for what was needed that could not be delivered by the standard requirements contracting acquisition system that sometimes just seems slow.
5: When you look at it, I mean, there were demand signals from all over the place. I I mean, you looked at the traditional Air Force acquisition systems. What we saw is, you know, they always went to a handful of, of big companies, you know, not always, but oftentimes they went to a handful of large companies. We also saw, you know, if you compared what the federal government does in general, typically, versus what Silicon Valley does, you know, are we getting the best and brightest? And then you look at that from a military lens and say, what are our adversaries doing? What are other countries doing? And are we on track? Are we keeping pace? Are we ahead of them? And what we needed to do is we needed to make sure we were getting the best of all of that and we were working with the best companies and putting the best idea makers together to deliver real capabilities that our airmen wanted to use and could use. And what were a couple of the early projects? Uh, a couple of the early ones, um, fighter helmets, for example. Fighter helmets, the very old 1980s design, incremental changes, just you know, incrementally a new modification would be added. But arguably, still the same design. And what AFWorks really did is we looked across the commercial sector, we looked across best practices and said, how do we get new ideas in? And we leveraged crowdsourcing. And so we looked out there and typically, you don't see the federal government asking people to do crowdsourcing to come up with solutions for technology. And so when we did that, we did that on the front end, but on the back end, we also worked the process side. We had the conversations with the acquisition community, the contract, the finance to say, How do we actually, if we do this crowdsourcing, how do we get to the next step? How do we scale this? Because we don't just want it an innovation pocket. We want to be able to scale it and make a difference. That's one project. That one has actually continued forward, and we saw great things come out of it. We saw collaboration amongst companies, uh, new helmet designs, which are more ergonomic, better sound protection. Uh, Those have come up, and they're actually in testing right now uh, with potential options for fielding within, I think, the next year or two. Wow! Um, So that was one of the very early ones. Other projects that we've looked at have been related to, like, uh, female bladder relief, uh, looking at, you know... In
1: fact, I think I had that interview on the show a number of years ago, that that was a real issue as more women came into the flying part of the force.
5: That's right. And, and, you know, that was a problem that came up from the field where we had these female aviators come to us and say what it turned out is oftentimes they were self-electing to dehydrate themselves because the solutions that were in place at the time weren't adequate or didn't meet their needs, or it wasn't comfortable or wasn't appropriate for them to use. And that know? could be and,
1: dangerous, it, flying at that altitude in a dehydrated situation, ab- especially with absolutely. the G-forces of fighters.
5: Absolutely. And so, similar approach. I mean, we, we took a design thinking approach with some of these major challenges, and we looked and said, what is the root cause of the problem? What's the solution? How do we think with a user-centric mindset to actually develop a reasonable workable solution? And that's another one that we've looked at. So much about this was empowering people from all levels to make a difference. We had developed what we called our Spark Tank competition, which is kind of like a Shark Tank, if you see the TV show, kind of like a Shark Tank competition. They came in and they pitched their ideas, and one of those ideas was for a, a new couch for an instructor to lay on while they're training the boom operators who fly in the aerial refueling planes. And so, what had been happening is about $100 million a year in medical costs because of back and neck strain, because there wasn't a platform in place. That simple idea that came from the field, we took that and we worked with that airman and we connected them with potential solutions. Small, minimum viable prototypes, uh, looked at the testing, and then started to scale them. And that's actually been implemented and started to be implemented across an entire fleet of aircraft, saving hundreds of millions of dollars.
1: We're speaking with Mark Ingram. He's chief strategy officer for the Air Force's Integrated Capabilities Directorate and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And let's back up a minute. The idea of a separate think tank type of operation within the Air Force, how did that idea get generated and how did it get approved?
5: The idea got generated, you know, looking across the public sector, looking across, you know, best practices of doing basic market research, to simplify it, is looking back and saying, you know, what has the Department of Defense done when it came to innovation in the past? And you could look at examples like battle labs and things like that, which have come and had some success, had some not so great success, lessons learned you could pick up. We also looked at what the Air Force was currently doing at the time to say, you know, AvWorks wasn't developed because there was no innovation happening in the Air force. AFWorks was developed because those pockets of innovation were exactly that. They were pockets. They weren't at a service level. They didn't have the level of impact that they could have potentially had by scaling them to a department level. And so what we really looked at is we looked at all of those pockets of innovation. We looked at a, almost a mapping of what are different things doing and not doing, why are these su- succeeding in some areas and not other areas, and we developed a concept. And that concept was developed in very short order, probably about three or four months, and we proposed it to the Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force at the time, General Wilson. It went up to the Secretary of the Air Force, and we got approval to, to stand it up. And, wow. and a key aspect of Afworks was opening physical storefronts where – non-traditional companies could meet face to face with the military or government civilians and could talk about their problems, talk about their solutions, interface like that. And we opened the first one within three months of the Green Light, which to get a government contract, a government facility open, that was no small lift. But that was the great thing about AFWorks is and it still is the great thing about AFWorks. I mean AFWorks it has grown so much and it has scaled But it's the coalition of everybody coming together for the greater good, which is exactly what we should be doing. We should be making our lives easier. We should be better stewards of everybody's money. And we should be looking at how can we make it better for ourselves. And at the time,
1: what was your job? And were you civilian by then? Because you did do a four-year stint in the Air Force uniform.
5: That's right. I did do active duty. I was a four-year active duty working at the Air Force Research Lab. By the time AFWorks came around, I was civil service. And at that time, when the concept first came around, I was actually working in an office I'm actually partially back in right now called the Strategic Development Planning and Experimentation Office. And my job in that capacity in part was developing industry strategies for how the Air Force develops new capabilities. Mm -hmm. So looking at the, you know, the Air Force puts out strategy documents that look out, you know, 20, 30 years, how do we get that information to the defense industrial base? So I was developing those strategies at the time, and that's when I started working with AFWorks. As AFWorks was approved and I stood up, I became a director of acquisition and strategy, really building out those partnerships with the acquisition community to help us scale. Um, I was also essentially the director of operations, managing the programmatic aspect of the program of how do we cost schedule performance of all our different contracts? How do we keep the lights on, essentially? How do we attract the right talent? How do we get in? We were attracting talent from all over the world, not just on the government side, but also consultants and people coming in wanting to work with us because we were doing business different. So director of operations and deputy lead of AFWorks for about four years while I was there.
1: All right. So what do you want to do next?
5: So, actually, right now, I, I went from AFWorks and I went from one Air Force innovation arm to, to another one. So, if you see AFWorks as kind of, you know, the, the outward public-facing innovation arm, where we're interfacing with companies and public and doing crowdsourcing, there's other innovation happening. And it's more strategic. It's more inward-focused. It's, you know, maybe not quite ready for us to share with, hey, this is exactly what we're doing. We want all your, your ideas. But there were four different offices, four different of these offices that were working different spectrums. Um, and they were working in science and technology, very early applied research type things, all the way up through experimentation and prototyping, where they're actually you know, developing things to put on airplanes and test them out real time. And so all of these offices were doing different things on different time spectrums. And uh, what I'm currently doing as uh, the chief strategy officer for that office, um, which is the integrated capabilities directorate we are aligning those four offices to start to look at how can we align Air Force science and technology with Air Force experimentation and prototyping, make sure that it's connecting into Air Force strategic architectures like system architectures, but also, and this is the fourth office, how do we meet urgent warfighter needs that are, they in a battlefield today and they can't do this very simple thing and we need to get them a solution. So by integrating all four of those offices together, we're one, making more resilience, better tools, better capabilities for our warfighters to use on the battlefield, but it's also giving us a leg up.
1: And you sound enthusiastic about both innovation itself and the process for fostering innovation. Two different things.
5: Absolutely, yes.
1: Mark Ingram is Chief Strategy Officer of the Air Force Integrated Capabilities Directorate and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Congratulations and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with all of our finalist interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, if the government does default, you might need that cash in your mattress. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. More questions than answers surround the possibility of a government debt default. But it would not be good for federal employees or retirees. For the duration, you might need to live on whatever rainy day cash you've got saved up. We get more now from certified financial planner Art Stein. Art, good to have you back.
6: Good to be back, Tom. Thank you.
1: And you've kind of posed a series of questions that we don't know that make it hard to plan in the first place. What are some of the top questions that we don't know?
6: Okay, well... One, we have to realize, and I did not realize, that a default is different from a government shutdown. Oh, yes, indeed. And we've actually, as I learned, never had a default. We've had shutdowns. A default is actually just all the payments, any money coming out of the government stops. So for federal employees and retirees, it means that salaries wouldn't be paid, annuities would not be paid, Social security would presumably not be paid, Medicare, Medicaid, everything could potentially stop. Now, one of the things we don't know is are they actually going to stop all of that? And is the assumption that they would make up the payments afterwards good, but a default could happen in a lot of different ways. So to begin with, we don't know when a default might occur you know, we keep hearing different dates. June 1st was the most recent date that I heard that seemed to be pretty much, I wouldn't say set in stone, but it seemed pretty definitive. But now I'm hearing that, well, maybe this, that, and the other might happen. A key thing that we don't know is if we had a default, would it last one or two days or one or two months? One or two days would be bad. I mean, it would Uh, Raise interest rates, maybe for a very prolonged period of time, and it would have various other reputational problems and things like that. An extended default would be disastrous. You know, in my lifetime and probably yours, Tom, the worst two financial crises were the 2007, eight, and nine crash and COVID. And it's possible that a default would be worse than all of those. Sure. Because one, it puts the United States in the position of such a self-inflicted wound that, you know, I think people, many people would no longer depend upon us. They wouldn't want to use the dollar and various other things. As I said, we don't know if there was a default, whether the money that wasn't paid would be paid once the default ended, and we don't know how damaging it would be to the US and world economies. So there are a lot of unknowns. But what we do know is this, a true default would mean that federal employees and retirees would not be getting any income from the government, including Social Security, not just salaries and annuities. So it means that everybody needs to look at their emergency funds because they might have to live on that for an extended period of time. And emergency funds, of course, include money you have in the bank. If someone has a home equity line of credit, that could be used. Credit card debt, which I hate, but it would make sense to you know run up balances on your credit cards while this was going on, presuming that when it ended, the money would be paid back and you could pay off those loans. Of course, the interest cost would not go away. And maybe people need to have cash. I mean, I don't know. Nobody knows. It's just such an unknown.
1: We are speaking with certified financial planner Art Stein. To get back to the original point, you know, is it different? And it is different from a government shutdown. The irony here is that the Treasury would stop paying bondholders for, you know, T-bills that come due. But yet Congress has appropriated all of the dollars necessary for the fiscal 2023. We're in the middle. That was late getting it done, but those monies are appropriated. So they could, in theory, be available. What's lacking is any kind of guidance as to what the order of payouts would be, what is subordinated to what. And it could be that federal salaries would be at the top of the list, but we just don't know yet. So that uncertainty from the White House, there's no guidance from OMB or anybody else.
6: I'm guessing that federal salaries would not be at the top of the list. I mean, I I, I just think that top of the list is going to be And and what we're speaking about here is, instead of cutting off all the payments, maybe they would still make some payments and some kind of priority, you know, list of how to make payments. And there's a bill that I guess has passed the House that says, well, priority should be interest on the debt, so we don't default on our bonds, and then they start going down the list. But I've also heard, and you know, here this is just speculation, that People aren't sure that they have the computer capacity to differentiate on these different types of payments. So it's just this huge unknown. And, and I don't really, uh, I can't speculate on that, or at least I don't like to. All I can say is, you know, it's always important to have an emergency fund and to have some way of, you know, getting, uh, to spend money if you need money temporarily, like a home equity line of credit and uh, now might be the time when uh, people that have that look good. I, I remember when we've had salaries were not paid. It was shocking how many people just could not go more than about a week.
1: Yes, and even though the Congress in the shutdown situations has voted to guarantee that the people would get back pay, that federal employees would get their back pay. Nevertheless, that's fine when it comes through, but you never know when it will come through. And as you say, people may only have a week's worth of savings.
6: And, and also, you know, we have, I'm sure there are government contractors who listen to their, your show. And um, of course, their payments would stop during a default. And I don't know what the situation would be in terms of paying them back.
1: All right. And so what other advice do you have then? I mean, once you max out the credit cards and use up your cash, then what? I mean, that, that's the end of the rope.
6: Yeah. Or to... you
1: start selling off TSP accounts.
6: Yeah. Well, that's another potential source of income. But it would be really too bad if people had to do that because they're going to be selling those funds probably after the both the stock and bond markets have crashed. And, you know, you, you really don't like to sell during that type of situation. Of course, if you take money out before age 59 and a half, you have penalties. I don't know how quickly people could get that money out. The G fund is affected in various ways that you may, I don't think interest is going to be paid on G fund balances. And I'm not sure how available those balances would be to take out during a default it's just this huge catastrophe that we don't know how it would unfold and it it just seems amazing that we have to talk about something that is so totally stupid to let happen to your country but politicians are acting in a way that it may happen.
1: Certified financial planner Art Stein, on that happy note, we'll thank you for joining (laughs) us.
6: I hope we talk about something better next month, Tom.
1: Let's hope so. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The 2023 edition of our May we Say Thank You campaign continues in support of the recent Public Service Recognition Week and Military Appreciation Month. You can send a thank you e-card to a fellow federal employee or a service member or a customer if you're a contractor. Visit federalnewsnetwork.com and click on May We Say Thank You, sponsored by NARF. 57 past the hour, this is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin.
0: The Federal Drive with Tom Temen.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, May 18th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temen. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurliam. our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, in our Service to America Medal series, how the Air Force went from logjam to innovation factory, plus what NIST is hearing from industry about critical infrastructure cybersecurity. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the third leg in the Office of Personnel Management's strategy stool is about to get glued into place. OPM already issued a strategic plan that focused heavily on technology modernization. The second leg was the data strategy the agency released last month. Guy Cavallo, the chief information officer for OPM, tells executive editor Jason Miller why the soon-to-be-released IT strategy for fiscal 2023 through 26 will complete the 18-month effort to remake the agency's modernization plans.
7: Surprisingly, it's going to focus on move to the cloud, improve user experiences, comply with the cybersecurity directives. I know some people complain about executive orders and directives. To me, a lot of the ones that have been issued on cyber and customer experience are basically telling IT people to breathe. These are things that should be part of our DNA. Uh, We shouldn't need a—I'm hoping the executive order isn't getting people to totally change what they did, but uh, actually reinforces, if they run into any resistance, on why they're doing it.
8: One of the other things uh, I want to talk about is those business value. And you mentioned, uh, again, a recent conference that I was at about a new chatbot launched for federal retirees to help answer questions. Let's discuss that effort, and then we'll move on to the bigger question, the 800-pound gorilla that's on OPM's back, which is the retirement process themselves. Uh, I've been around long enough to know that OPM has tried and tried and tried, and (laughs) hopefully you will not fall on the... uh, graves of others who have also failed at modernizing retirement services. Let's start with the chat bot,
7: though. One thing that retirees or people interested in calling our retirement services contact center are seeing is that we have way, way more calls coming in than we have the ability of agents to answer. When I first got to OPM, the technology supporting the call center was the biggest problem, as it would constantly conveniently just collapse and lose hundreds of people that were on hold. We have fixed that by moving to a cloud based call center, but what that has done is made it technology not be our our point of contention, but how many agents do we have available to be able to answer a call in a in a decent period of time. So one of the things I knew that we could do to help it is that, you know, we didn't have a really good way to help retirees with questions and answers um, on our website. They were difficult to follow. You had to read through a lot. And I said, this is something that a chat bot, being able to answer, type in a question and answer it, could potentially relieve some amount of calls going into the call center. We are working with Director Ahuja. We are expanding the number of call takers, but there's a limit to uh, how many times can you uh, just keep increasing Staff, So we're looking at technology to help with that. Uh, you know, we're using the chatbot to learn, uh, to see what type of questions are, are being asked that we don't currently have an answer in the chatbot so that we can prioritize answering those questions. And it's, it's been, a, uh, been a great interactive. I'm seeing several program offices working together uh, across our, our retirement services team, along with our health insurance team, along with our comms team, along with my technical team. Every time there's an answer, those three or four of those teams work on every word of the, of the answer to make sure that we're being as clear as possible and uh, not making it too techy of an answer, but one that can, can help. So it's something that's gonna evolve over time. And then I'm, I'm looking to expand it to our, uh, when we revamp our opm.gov website, which I have TMF money to do, Uh, We also will introduce chatbots there for the overall OPM.
8: You mentioned recently there's something like, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, about 50 questions currently in the chatbot, and you're saying we want to get much more, and you'll this is a part of that, that step process, as you'll kind of look at which questions are most popular, which one can be answered, how's that process gonna work? How quickly can you add more questions and answers?
7: We're way beyond 50 questions already uh, because those teams are meeting on a weekly basis and reviewing the questions that the chatbot isn't able to answer, and then reprioritizing the ones that we answer. So it, it's not on a set refresh cycle. It's as soon as we're ready to add questions, we can keep expanding that knowledge base.
8: What's the most difficult thing in setting up the chat bot? Uh, you, I think you mentioned VA as a, an example of somebody, an agency who's, who's using this to help answer questions. Did you lean on VA to beg borrow, steal from them?
7: Yeah, they, they had some great strategies and some advice for us. I'd, I'd say the most difficult part for us was in OPM you have people that have been there 20, 30, 40, 50 years that have great experiences and sometimes we weren't capturing the right person's experience in the answer and and, uh, if you did talk to an agent, you might get a little different answer than the next one over. So something that I think has been very helpful out of this process is consolidating and giving everybody what's the single best answer to this question. And then from there, we're able to replicate that back to the call agents and any of our training materials. So, like I said, the chatbot education isn't just helping the chatbot, it's helping us retrain our call takers on, here's a better way to answer this question than we've been answering it in the past.
8: And sometimes that's half the battle because you call today and get an answer, you call tomorrow and get a slightly different answer and that causes frustration on the user. We, We all have experienced that, whether we call you know, our accountant or our lawyer or whomever, that seems to be a big change for retirement services. From a technology perspective, what are some of those other changes you're starting to look at? Because again, as I mentioned previously, a lot of folks have tried and not many have been successful to really bring this into the modern age.
7: What I've heard has failed in the past is that we've tried to do the big bang approach and fix everything at once. What I'm focusing on is let's get current new retirees into a digital form so that we're not trying to fix the entire past at the same time and then let's also for the people that are already through paper entered into the system let's bring that data into that same common customer experience so that our agents can find the status of a retiree in one place right now they have to look in multiple places so that's not fixing everything at once. It's starting to move towards a centralized common case management solution so that everyone has a case that can be looked up by the agent. Uh, ideally, you know what VA has done that I'm hoping when we get to that point, we'd be able to do is allow you to, with the right uh, multi-factor authentication, have the bot look up your particular status. Uh, so right now, our bot is a very, it's a general uh, you can't do any PII with it. But when we can get to that integrated case central management system, then the bot could look up the case and see where your application is or where are you in the process. So that's going to take us a while, but that's the path I want to head to. Again, I want retirees or potential future retirees to be able to quickly find out their status, what funding are they going to uh receive when they retire, and when's that first check going to come that's their full amount? Those are the questions we get today that it's it's a very laborious process to get those answers today.
1: Guy Cavallo, the Chief Information Officer at the Office of Personnel Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, what NIST is hearing from industry about critical infrastructure cybersecurity. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
6: I'm Jared Serbu. Each week, our program, On DoD, features discussions with the military's top brass, mid-civilian executives, and defense thinkers on how the Pentagon operates, its reliable information from the people making and executing policy. Tune in Wednesdays at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. on Federal News Network, or subscribe to On DoD on iTunes or Podcast One.